Good morning. It's time to begin, even though everyone isn't here yet. I see some new faces. How many of you are here for the first time in this seminar? Okay. Well, you are at a disadvantage because if you were not here yesterday, you didn't get, uh, you didn't hear what we were talking about. If you study a Bible book, I should have mentioned this at the first session. When you study a Bible book, each session builds on the next one, or the, on the previous one, because you're studying the, the whole book. It's not a topical study that you could just choose a topic and come in. If you want to get the whole impact of the book that we're studying, you need to attend all of the sessions. So you're at a bit of a disadvantage, because I don't have time to summarize everything that we talked about yesterday for four hours. I didn't mean to chase you out. <laughs> Maybe you should. Okay, let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we open your holy word again this morning, we pray for the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. Impress your truth upon our hearts and minds and move us to believe it, obey it, and live it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On Wednesday night, <clears throat> during the brief introduction at the plenary session, I said that if you come, bring your head and your heart. And I said that because head knowledge, even of the Bible, is not enough. God not only does something for us in Jesus, he does something in us. I'm talking about the inner being. Now, to believe the right doctrines is essential. But those doctrines are intended to produce a believing faith, a life lived in faith and obedience. And if that doesn't happen, there is no salvation, even though you may know intellectually the truths, the doctrines. We're beginning to get into chapter 4 of First John. And for the benefit of those of you that were not here yesterday, I'm going to repeat the verses that we read. We read uh, just at the close yesterday, in chapter 2, beginning with verse 18 um, through 26, and then down to chapter 4, the first six verses. So, chapter 2, verse 18. Well, I think we'll skip that part and we'll go to chapter 4. Because we were talking yesterday about the fact that uh, John wrote the most memorable words in the New Testament. God so loved the world that he gave, and so on. And now here in chapter 2, beginning with verse 18, he says, don't love the world. Do not love the world. So we talked about the difference between those two. But that was yesterday. So let's go to chapter 4, beginning with the first verse. <clears throat> Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist 
which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Here's the great controversy, uh, the way John puts it. Uh, as it affects the very faith and the lives of the members of God's church and as that controversy impacts the message and the mission of that church in the critical time of the last hour. John identifies the times as the last hour. The great struggle for truth that will determine whether or not the church is fully prepared to meet the demands of its mission in the last hour. <clears throat> and I mentioned the fact also yesterday that uh, my century was the 20th century. That's the century I was born in, uh, 1929. I'm now 80 years old. The 21st century is yours. And if time lasts, the demands that that century is going to place upon the mission of this church is going to be different than it was in the 20th century. More essential even, more critical perhaps because of the times. And if you keep up with the news, you know very well that we are living in a time of political, uh, social, cultural, and moral, and religious chaos and confusion today. Now John is the only New Testament writer who uses the word antichrist, which has two meanings, against Christ or opposing Christ and instead of or in place of Christ. He does not specifically identify the antichrist. He doesn't tell us exactly who that antichrist is. I have some, thank you. He leaves that up to us who if we are interested enough and concerned enough, and certainly we ought to be, if we are the church of the last hour, uh, we will search for the biblical and the historical evidence that helps us know who the Antichrist is, especially the books of Daniel and Revelation. And by comparing God's word with the record of human events from their time up to the time of the last hour. <clears throat> what John does tell us is that the presence of the spirit of the Antichrist and false prophets are proof that it is the last hour. But to know that is not enough. To know it should set alarm bells ringing in our ears, causing the church of the last hour to be most diligent to know the truth so they can overcome them, as John says in chapter 4, verse 5, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, the devil and the Antichrist. And he also calls our attention to one of the effects that the spirit of Antichrist has on the church that is faced with the demands of the last hour mission. And this is the saddest thing of all. Now we go back to chapter 2. Verse 18, when he says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out 
that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's the saddest thing of all. It makes us weep. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For, they had, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, he says. But they went out. Now, when I was working on this study, the temptation was very strong not to deal with this. To somehow tiptoe around what John says here in the second chapter. But we can't do that, can we? If we're going to be true to the text. Because this is central to 1 John. And to the theme of this series of studies. We, we would not do justice to 1 John if we ignored what he just said here. He's talking about defection, about abandoning loyalty to the church of the last hour, loyalty to its message and its mission. He's saying that the faith of those who went out was not firm enough, not fully established in the truth. Hence, they were easily swayed by false prophets. Persuaded by the Antichrist and the false prophets to believe lies And furthermore, the fact that they went out indicates that they were really not of us, he says. Otherwise, they would not have been persuaded by, by lies, but would have continued with us, as he says. Is, isn't this the sad experience of the remnant church? We all know former members that have left us, laymen, even pastors, and even some theologians, scholars, teachers, perhaps even relatives of ours, loved ones. Some of our best friends have become our greatest enemies spiritual enemies. And we feel that they have betrayed us. Even reminding us of Judas, who betrayed his Lord for a few pieces of silver. You remember, only a friend can betray you. An enemy can't betray you because you know who he is. But a friend can betray you because you don't suspect the betrayal or the disloyalty of a friend. But in reality, it is God's truth that is betrayed, not us. Now, some of these folks that leave us, as, Paul, as John says, cause trouble for us, for former brethren. They set up websites and publish literature that misrepresents what our church stands for and what we believe. And in so many cases, it's simply because of some bad experience that they may have had along the way. I remember picking up one of these magazines that was published by some Adventist dissidents, and I read an article by a lady 
<coughs> who was testifying to the fact that in order to find Jesus, she had to leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I read this article and I said, I, I just don't understand these people. What has happened? You know, when they can't find Jesus. I found him in this church. If I hadn't, I wouldn't have come in, I wouldn't have joined you. When I was a Lutheran pastor and went to Andrews University, my first goal was to see if Jesus lived on this campus in the lives of the professors and the students. If I had not found evidence of, of Christ's presence, I would have left. You know, so my response to her article was, that's not my experience. I haven't heard anybody preach or teach that we earn our salvation by obeying God's law. Nobody has told me that or preached that or taught that in any of the classes that I took as a graduate student at our seminary. I don't understand these people. I just don't. And most of us are aware of the anti-Adventist website, websites that do so much damage to our mission, and it makes us sad. Makes me sad. Why is it that people are more ready to believe the stuff they read on the web than the testimony of the Bible alone? Now, uh, you can bet that the devil has his finger in the web. He's pretty clever, you know. He'll use the same means that we use to spread the gospel message around the world. He will use the same means to deceive us. That's why John says we have to be able to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error so that when we read this stuff, when we see this stuff on the web, we can tell the difference. And that's up to you, up to me. You know, you have to be prepared so that you're enabled to do that. Now, you may be thinking, Pastor Holmes, you left your former church. Isn't that the same thing? And I'm sure some folks would see it that way when they hear me say what I just said. But the Protestant church that I was a part of was in the process of abandoning sola scriptura, abandoning the Bible as the only authority for faith and life. And it still is. I could tell you horror stories about what is going on and what has happened in that denomination. They're involved in a huge struggle right now. A struggle with theological heresy and doctrinal apostasy. But I was determined to stay with the Bible. And I still am. That's why I'm here. Last fall, my wife and I were invited to attend a meeting with some members of our former denomination who were concerned about things that were happening in their church. They belonged to a reform movement within that denomination. And they're, they're very concerned about uh, this retreat from the Bible alone. And I asked one of them if what was happening in the, the church was could be considered a form of apostasy. And he said, yes. Well, then my next obvious question to him was, okay, you believe in sola scriptura, you, don't you? And he said, yes, I do. And so I said, what does the Bible, the word of God alone, 
say that God tells us to do in that kind of a situation? And the answer, which he didn't produce, because by and large Lutherans don't study the book of Revelation, it's a total mystery to them, except for the seven letters, and maybe the chapter on faith. The answer is, if we adhere to sola scriptura, is Revelation 18.4, come out of her, the apostate church, my people. Because as I mentioned yesterday, Luther discovered that you cannot reform an apostate church because there's no basis for reformation if the Bible has been thrown out. The only thing you can do is follow what God says and come out. Find a church that adheres to the truth, to, to the word of God. Why come out, John says in Revelation? If you don't, you'll participate in her sins, he says. Come out of her, my people, lest you participate in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. That is to, that is to say, participate in her work of apostasy and deception, as well as the ultimate consequences of that which is judgment. Now there's a big difference after all between falling for the deceptive lies of the Antichrist and the false prophets and obeying the call of God to come out. If you leave a church that's pre preaching God's truth, you're doing it for another reason. not because you want to follow truth. Now, is this distinction clear? One is a response to lies and deception. The other is a response to the call of God based on his word alone. And the choice is up to each one. And it's all part of preparing the church of the last hour to meet the demands of its mission. Concerning the return of the Lord and the events that precede it, the Bible tells us, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter or a website. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, the King James Version says the falling away, the apostasy, comes first. Apparently this prophesied, though sad experience is part of that preparation. It doesn't weaken the church when those who are not of us leave us. Now that's thinking, if we think that way, we're thinking in human terms. When they leave us, the church is weakened. Oh no, no, no. Things are getting serious, that's, that's what it means. It's intended to make her stronger. God is weeding out. He's in charge, he's sovereign. The Holy Spirit is working. Why, do, why is he allowing this? Why is God doing this? Why is he weeding this, the disloyal out of the, of the remnant church? Because there's no room for vacillation anymore. That's why. Time is too short. The issue is too critical. There's no time for vacillation. Things are getting serious. Those that are left are more united, more certain, more determined to remain faithful to Bible truth no matter what. And that's exactly what God wants for his last hour church. So that when the crisis moments come, we don't cave in. 
Now let me give you an example by, by way of illustration. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar's image in the book of Daniel. It stood on feet of iron and clay, which cannot mix. Which means the feet and legs are the weakest part of the image. Okay? Because iron and clay cannot mix. The weakest part of the image, what it stands on and where it stands, is its weakest part. The reason why the image was able to be smashed so readily by the rock was not because of the head of gold or the, you know, the, uh, the belly and, and thighs of iron, but because of the feet and legs that were weak. It crumbled right away. And where did the stone hit? The feet. The weakest part. Truth and falsehood cannot be mixed. Because what do you have? If you mix truth with falsehood, what do you have? Do you have half truth? No, you have falsehood. Because you can't mix them up. If you try, you don't have half truth or, or uh, half falsehood. You have lies. That's what you have. Deceptive lies. And so the stone smashed the image, smashed it, stroke, struck it on the feet. And the rock is solid, it's unbreakable with no cracks, no weaknesses, or it couldn't do its job. Now what is the antidote that protects the last hour church from the poisonous effects of the Antichrist and the false prophets? It's in the text. First of all, chapter 2, verse 18, that church knows that it is the last hour. It knows that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world already, chapter 4, verse 3. And because of its careful study of the Bible, it knows its enemy and how that enemy operates. It does not ignore that reality, sweep it under the rug, pretend it is not so, because the evidence of the Bible matched the evidences of history. The last hour church is keenly aware of the insidious, elusive, diabolical power of the spirit of the Antichrist and its deep Bible study that enables that church to identify the Antichrist power and so be prepared to meet it. And secondly, that church has been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge, chapter 2, verse 20. You all have knowledge, you know. And also, chapter 2, verse 27, the anointing that you received from him, the Father and Son. What is that anointing? That's the Holy Spirit, right? Abides in you. In, it's internal. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. You know. Jesus said, and John records his words in his gospel, chapter 16, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And I want you to notice in, in John's thinking here the, the relationship between the anointing and the truth. The members of the last hour church are not awed by human or ecclesiastical claims of superior knowledge. They are not awed and seduced by pomp and ceremony, wealth and power. They know that the humblest person with the Bible in his hands 
has at his disposal more wisdom when it comes to the knowledge of salvation than all secular and religious authorities combined. Luther once said that a, a simple farmer with the Bible in his hand has more spiritual authority than all the bishops in the world. Why? Because lies do not have the same source as the truth. Truth comes from the living word, Jesus. And is revealed in his written word, which is inspired by the spirit of truth. Lies ultimately come from Satan are broadcast about by the spirit of Antichrist and false prophets and constitute, as John says, the spirit of error. Third, the last hour church abides in the truth which it has heard from the beginning, and because this is so, its members abide in the Son and in the Father. John says, chapter 2, verse 24. Now, abide means to stay with it, certain of it, unmoved by falsehood. It means to remain and to continue. John, John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 31, John says, Jesus said to the Jews, and by the way, he was there. He heard it. He saw it. He touched him. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if, and by the way, every time, most every time you read an if, it introduces a condition. When you read a but, it introduces a contrast. But if usually introduces a condition. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you don't abide in my word, you're not my disciples, you're somebody else's, but not mine. That's what he's saying. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, he did not say that we are his disciples if we say so. Just because we say so. But only if we abide, stay, remain, continue in his word, sola scriptura. Protestants ought to know that. If anybody ought to know that, it should be Protestant Christians, especially Seventh-day Adventists. Ellen White wrote in Testimonies, Volume 3, page 281, she said, if, if God abhors one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, it is doing nothing in case of an emergency. Indifference and neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded by God as a grievous crime she says, and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. Wow. Indifference, neutrality, when we're faced with a religious crisis, either individually or as a corporate body, is a grievous crime. And it's the worst type of hostility against God. Now this, this is John, the apostle of love, writing. You know, he's one who doesn't equivocate. He draws lines. That was a line. You know, he draws lines. But that's not appreciated in today's world, not even in today's church. They don't want lines drawn. Because when you draw a line, you become accountable. 
Nobody wants to be accountable today to anybody or anything. That's the world we live in today. I'm an American, I love my country. I've always considered myself to be a patriot. I still do, I love my country. I love the principles upon which this nation was founded because they come right from the word of God. But I can't stand the culture today. Makes me wanna throw up. That's the culture in which, we, in which God has assigned us to, to, for our, to our mission. While John began his gospel, which I mentioned is my favorite of the four gospels, he began his gospel with, in the beginning was the word which is the style of Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the universe, the earth, human beings and everything in it. And we're in the midst of that spiritual crisis today. The way we think about human origins, even our church is involved in this today. You know it if you read the church papers. It's distressing. In his gospel, he speaks of the, of the spiritual recreation of mankind through faith in the Son of God, Jesus. And he speaks of it in these memorable words that I've quoted so many times, for God so loved the world of humanity. that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You notice the biblical terms, it says whoever. God makes no distinctions, no racial, ethnic, language, cultural, nation, national distinctions. God makes no distinctions. We do that. Sinful fallen humanity does that. He doesn't. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have, have, have eternal life. Because God loves the world of humanity he made, he saves the world of humanity that he made. The connection between the world that he made and the world that he saves is Jesus. And so John says, in the beginning was the word. He was in the, it was in the beginning with God. In him, that is in the word was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1 verses one through five. Jesus is the word of God, the living word. And he is the light of men and women and boys and girls. He knows the way, he shows the way, he illuminates the way, he is the way, the only way to salvation and eternal life. And in this little letter that is so relevant and timely for Seventh-day Adventist Christians, John is not talking about the beginning but about the end. You know, he starts by saying, in the beginning was the word in his gospel, but in his letter he's talking about the end. The last hour, the children, it is the last hour, he says in chapter 2, verse 18. The historical contexts are very different. Everything he says in this letter has to be understood in the light of the last hour. 
The important thing to remember is that in the beginning was the word and the same is true in the end. In the beginning was the word and in the end is the word. Beginning and end are connected in Christ who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And John quoted those words in Revelation 22. What is the meaning? He's, he was there at the beginning and he will be there at the end as he has been all along the way. He was there at the beginning of your life, even though you didn't know it, and he's going to be there at the end. Not just with reference to the way you and I view the world of humanity and events and calamities and history, but our own personal histories. That's why I said, if you come to this seminar, bring your head and your heart. Because I don't want you to just know about Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. Do you know, if, you, if you're a born-again believer, do you, where is Jesus? It's in your heart is within you. That's what the Bible says. I'm so glad I don't have to live this life and, and you know, and fight the devil by myself. He's there with me. And remembering that he who began a good work in you, not for you, but in you, uh, he did something for you on Calvary, but he began a, a good work in you. Somewhere along the way, when you surrendered your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit had access to your heart, to your inner being. He never had that access before. But when you surrendered in faith to Jesus, the Holy Spirit had access to your inner life. That's why Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The God who created us and gave us new life in Christ is going to finish what he started in you. He's going to finish the job. Is he finished yet with you? No, he's not finished with me yet. I'm 80 years old and, you know, recently I, I was talking to the Lord and I asked him, how come you let me live so long? Because I know a lot of people died before 80. And not only just live so long, but still be active in ministry. And this is his answer that he gave to me. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. I said, oh, okay, I understand. There's something that you need to finish in me yet. I'm not finished yet. Because, you know, God is at work by his spirit recreating us, transforming us into the image of Christ. I remember six years ago, my wife and I were studying with a young woman at our dining room table. And when we studied that truth, that by virtue of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling Christ, the Lord is, is uh, transforming his believers into the image of Christ. Her jaw dropped down to here. She, has been, she had been a Christian for many, many years and had read her Bible, you know, many, many times and had never saw that before and her response was I have to join these people that was a, not only a revelation a head revelation to her but a wonderful heart experience to think that my savior 
my, my God, through, his, through the power of his Holy Spirit, is actually working inside of me to make me Christ-like. The saving of the world goes on until the very end, and God's people, God's church, are a part of that mission to the very end. And the object of God's love is the fallen world, as he told us in John 3.16. That's the object of God's love. It is also the object of his church's love. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He says to the church, I love the world. I gave my son for the world. Now you love it, and you go out there and bear witness to my son for that same world. And so the church made up of God's redeemed people is in the world with the specific mission of making disciples, followers of Jesus. That's what our mission is. And that's the world's only hope, my friends. You and I and the message we bring is the world's only hope. That's pretty serious. Provided that the church is faithful, uncompromisingly true to the word of God and fulfills its mission. We are not the hope of the world if we don't do what God has told us to do and sent us into the world to do. To the world, say, so far John has been speaking to the church. Now, to the world, John says about Jesus, 1 John 2, 2, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. That is to say, Jesus turns away God's wrath and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, only Christianity has that message. You got that? And to the church that has a mission in the world, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if... We keep his commandments. In other words, if there is evidence, spiritual evidence in your life that you have been born again and you are a child of God. And the evidence is a believing faith, a faith that obeys. Now, while John's focus is on the church of the last hour, he sees that church against the background of the reality of the world as it is in that hour, the last hour. He doesn't have his head in the clouds, in other words. He is very much aware of the condition of the world in which the last hour church is to bear its witness and fulfill its mission. We must be aware of that too. And it is that condition that should stir the church. And remember when I use the word church, I mean you. You are the church. It's not the brethren up there somewhere. It's not the GC or the union or the, or the local conference or even the, the, the collective clergy. You are the church. I'm a part of you. I'm a part of the church. We together are the church. And it's the condition of the world in the last hour that the Bible describes that should stir the church and motivate it powerfully for the kind of sacrificial work that is demanded by the last hour. 
And so let's take a look at the condition of the world of the last hour and the demands that that reality places on the church in that time so that we know what we are up against and so that we can respond in the spirit of Jesus. The New Testament uses three Greek words that have been translated world in English. One is oikumene, which means the populated world or the kingdoms of the world. The other is ion, which usually means an age or an eon of time, including time and space. The third word is cosmos which means order or system. <clears throat> the material world, the things that have been made, especially the human inhabitants. But John, it's interesting, uses only the word cosmos in his letter when he speaks of the world. Because he is talking about mankind as a whole that has been alienated from God and is under the control of Satan. And he's also referring to the complex of ideas by which humanity has organized itself into nations and societies and cultures. And it's not a pretty picture. Because he says, as Paul says, excuse me, in 2 Timothy 3, because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, merrily living along. Because if after the redeemed, as Peter says, have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, that is to say the defilements of the world, and overcome by them, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It's not a pretty picture. And Jesus describes this condition in metaphorical language when he says no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, Jesus said. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. Matthew 9. The world of fallen humanity that is in the power of the evil one, as John says, is full of hate for God's people and his church. And knowing that, realizing that as a reality is part of being prepared to meet the demands of the last hour mission so that our heads are not in the clouds either or in the sand. The condition of the world in the last hour is that of widespread hostility toward God, his truth, and his people. And that hostility can be both secular and, and religious hostility. And the presence of that, that hostility should not, should not surprise God's people. It shouldn't surprise us. because we know and understand his word. He tells us what to expect. So it shouldn't surprise us when, it, when it's there. We need to be ready for it and prepared to meet it, in other words. And God has told us that Satan is furious, and John says this in Revelation chapter 12, is furious with the woman, his church, 
and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep that revere, that revere and observe the commandments of God and hold to, that is to say, cling to, will not let go of the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus prepares us too. When he says, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many of you will fall away. You can't take it. These are the ones that John refers to as the ones that left us. That have left us. will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and, and lead many astray and because lawlessness, you know what that is, refusal to obey God's law. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. As lawlessness increases, the love of people will grow cold. That's what Jesus says. That's a somber reality. You know, we hear a lot of talk about love today. Everybody wants to talk about love. But it's not the kind of love that the Bible portrays. It's this mushy, fuzzy kind of love that has no guts, no backbone. No real concern or consideration. No willingness to sacrifice for somebody else or, or for, for a truth or for a principle. But then Jesus adds a promise. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's from Matthew 24. So, John says, don't be surprised that the world hates you, Christians, God's people. Proof of that hatred goes all the way back to Cain who murdered his brother Abel. Why did Cain kill his brother? John tells us, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Evil cannot stand righteousness. Now we are, we are now beginning to face the hostility of Western culture toward Christian truths and ideals. Isn't that true? I never thought I'd live to see that day, but it's here. And such hostility can be expected to increase, especially in the last hour. It is a time when, as John says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Where did they come from? And who do these false prophets represent? He tells us. John tells us. He says they are from the world, they come from the world. The world of humanity. Therefore they speak from the world. In other words, with the world's ideas and the world's philosophy. And the world listens to them. Of course the world listens to them because they're speaking the world's ideas, the world's philosophy. They clap their hands. Yeah, 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 that's the way it is. 
They are produced in the context of that hostility. In other words, that's where the false prophets come from. They are produced in the context of that kind of hostility against God's people. And it takes many different philosophical forms. Many. And so they speak, they teach ideas that represent the thinking of that world and that support its hostile views. And they are listened to by that hostile world because they are saying what that world wants to hear. And John calls them deceivers because John does not equivocate, you see. He draws a line. The arch deceiver produces his own disciples. John says in his second little epistle in verse seven, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, the world of humanity, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. <clears throat> and to the church he urges, Second John verse eight, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Watch yourselves, he says. You know, he, he didn't say watch the world. He says, watch yourselves, God's people, so that you don't lose what you have already attained. Watch yourselves, beware, take heed, don't fall for the deception, no matter how appealing it may sound. Don't fall away, he says, and betray one another and hate one another. Why not? So you don't forfeit yourselves what you have preached to others. So you don't lose the souls you have won by betraying the truth and so uh, and by doing so, fomenting doubt. God wants to strengthen the church of the last hour spiritually so that his people will stay true and united in Christ in that crucial time. And that unity is the protection that we need from the world and essential for gathering disciples out of the world. We, nobody is going to be attracted to our church if we are not united together on the same page when it comes to faith in Christ and the truths that we hold. Because they will look at us and listen to us and say, ah, these people don't know what they believe. They argue about this all the time, you know. And so he says to that church, the church of the last hour, quote, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the world of hostility, that's the world of hostility is passing away along with its desires. It's, in other words, he says, it's not going to last. And the reason it's not going to last, by the way, it is, is, is that it has no truth foundation. And when there's no truth foundation, the whole structure that you build above it, philosophical or otherwise, is going to crumble. So he says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does, that is to say the church, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God is going to last, in other words. And he explains that in chapter 3, verse 1, the reason why the world that is hostile to Christians does not know us is that it did not know him. How can a person who does not know God recognize God's people? 
You see? The world is so far from God that it is hard to recognize his people. Which is why they have to watch yourselves, as John says. He speaks that to you and to me, to the church of the last hour. He says, watch yourselves. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world, he says. Don't be like them, in other words. Watch yourself. Don't be like them. Don't get like them. Don't fall for the deception. Why not? Well, he tells us, chapter 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, sensuality he's talking about, and we know what that means today. And the desires of the eyes, that's covetousness. And pride in possessions, that's materialism, is not from the Father. But it's from the world. In other words, that's the way the hostile world is. It's full of sensuality. It's full of covetousness. It wants everything that somebody else has, and it's full of materialism and greed. Don't believe everything you hear, in other words, he's saying, from the world of false prophets. Test it against the word of God. Listen to and believe only that which confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh. That is the cardinal test. And the safety and the protection of the last hour church lies in the fact that we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Is our time up already? Huh? This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.